0: no, you have to finish every book you started. And as soon as I put this book down, I was like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna DNF books now. I can't do that anymore.
1: <laughs> hey readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 264. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, first, a real quick PSA. The ebook of my book, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, is just $1.99 right now. It's the perfect collection for any book lover. It has over 4,000 five-star ratings on Goodreads, and it will only be at this price till year's end. Get your copy of I'd Rather Be Reading today. If you're still gift shopping but miss the holiday shipping deadlines, we've got just the thing for the book lover in your life don't worry about the extra cost of rush shipping. Instead, opt for a digital gift to surprise and delight your favorite bookworm. This year, consider giving the readers in your life a membership to the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club. This is where we gather online for community, classes, and conversation. And we have wonderful plans for all three coming up this winter, including author talks and book discussions, classes that'll help you create the perfect 2021 reading plan for you, and fun conversations like the best books of the year with the whole Modern Mrs. Darcy and What Should I Read Next team. Gift memberships are available for three, six, or 12 months and include access to all of our live events, all our previous author talks and classes, and all the book talk you can handle. Choose to email your recipient a confirmation of the purchase or keep it a surprise and have the confirmation come to you, to share in a card, on a bookmark, or with a book you're giving as well. Find out more and get your gift membership at modernmrsdarcy.com shop. Today, I'm talking with Anna Morton, a Chicago-based mood reader with a contagious love of books. When she's not working or volunteering for the Art Institute of Chicago, Anna is reading compulsively readable literary fiction, a term I fondly coined for books with the perfect combination of page-turning plot and stunning prose. Reading is also a family affair for Anna, who proudly plays the role of literary commissioner for their literary Christmas tradition, which I'm eager to implement with my family starting right now. She shares all the details in today's episode, and I share recommendations for books with unique and interesting structures. Let's get to it. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I cannot wait to talk books with you today. Anna, tell me a little bit about your reading life. So, I, like many
0: of your listeners, have been a lifelong voracious reader. Read all the Nancy Drews. Any kind of like lady detective story was my jam. (laughs) Oh, that is the laugh of recognition and childhood memories. Oh, we all wanted to be Nancy Drew. My parents always really encouraged me in that. My dad, one summer when we were in grade school, probably came up with this challenge where we all had to read 10,000 pages by the end of the summer. And if we did, they would take us to a Mariners game And so my parents love to say that's when my love of reading started. But I'm still a reader to this day. I love getting lost in a book. And it's, you know, it's my escape. It's the thing I love to do to wind down, but also to connect with other people. And it's manifested itself in, you know, a lot of money spent at the bookstore, a lot of reading, (laughs) tracking, (laughs) spreadsheets. So it's definitely a big part of my life.
1: Well, there are a lot of good bookstores where you are.
0: Oh, So many. Chicago is full of really great indie bookstores.
1: When I say favorite, what what images pop into your mind?
0: (laughs) I claim unabridged bookstore in Chicago as my local indie. It's an amazing bookshop. They are so well-stocked and the staff is so knowledgeable. We have myopic books here. We have City Lit over in Logan Square. So there are tons to choose from.
1: I don't know those last two. Well, next
0: time you're in Chicago, you should definitely seek them out.
1: Noted. I, I have a long list of bookstores to visit up there. So they get a lot of your money. Oh yes. My
0: parents like to tease me a little bit, but
1: you know, there are a lot worse things I could spend my money on. <laughs> what would that teasing look like? What might they say to you? Hi, mom and dad.
0: I'm always like, okay, well, we could do a little sightseeing and then we definitely have to visit this bookstore. And they're like, well, we always go to bookstores when we're with you. And I'm like, yeah, but just
1: one more. We could buy one more. <laughs> I think you could make a strong case for exploring a city by exploring its bookstores, because the best bookstores are so local to the community.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I really love about Unabridged here is that it's so enmeshed in the community and Mm -hmm. the history of Chicago. So every time you go in, it's just a little peek inside the city. And it's a block from
1: intelligentsia. Yeah. Your parents had you read 10,000 pages a summer, and yet are are they complaining about going to the bookstores? I'm
0: not complaining. Once we get inside, they're, <laughs> right, they're always happy to be there. They pretend like they don't want to, but I know they really
1: want to. Okay, I'm a little hung up on this 10,000 pages because <laughs> I haven't I haven't heard of that before, but I really like it because so many adult readers I talk to are very concerned about the number of books they read. Not always, but mm-hmm. this is a common I'd almost call it a mistake people make in their reading life. It's something that they focus on to the detriment and not the benefit of their reading life. And they end up trying to game the system at the end of the year. Like, oh, I wanted to read 50 books. So that means I need a whole bunch of short ones. But it sounds like from your childhood, you, I mean, this is still a quantity driven metric, but it sounds like you saw this question differently because of that.
0: Yeah, I would definitely say so. And I think To my parents' credit, like, it didn't matter what those 10 pages were. You know, it could be Sweet Valley High books. It could be whatever we wanted. It was just really important to them that we keep reading. And I think that's really what has stuck with me, you know, into adulthood is like, it doesn't matter what you read, but reading in and of itself is a worthwhile goal. So if you just keep picking up books, keep turning the pages you know, you're going to be a better person and you're inevitably going to find something that you love and that, you Mm. know, continues that spark of reading. I definitely, you know, sometimes have to push back on that impulse myself of like, oh, I just like have to get my numbers up. But as long as, you know, my love of reading is still there, I try to take it a little easy on myself.
1: I'm glad to hear that.
0: How do you decide what to read, Anna? Oh, I am a hundred percent mood reader. I love to skip between genres as well. So oftentimes when I finish reading a book, I'll think, okay, what's the exact opposite genre of this book that I just read? And I'll go pick something like that. So I'm not I'm not really good with a list or a TBR, like a definite TBR. I just kind of go wherever the wind blows me.
1: Anna, what do you do when you're not reading? How does reading fit into your life as a whole? Yeah,
0: so I, as I said, live in Chicago. I work in HR consulting and really, aside from my job and volunteering at the Art Institute, reading gets slotted in in all of my free time. I love to read after work, on the weekends. I was a big audiobook listener on my commute before I mm, stopped going into mm-hmm. the office. But it's pretty much how I like fill my free time. As I mentioned, I volunteer at the Art Institute. In college, I was a double major in business and art history, which my advisor loved to tell me I was the only person she'd ever seen with that combination. (laughs) Um, So it was a really good way to use both sides of my brain. I always say um, I love art. And luckily here in Chicago, we have a gorgeous, gorgeous art museum called the Art Institute of Chicago. I work in business corporate world, but knew I didn't want to give up that part of my life because I really love art history. And so I applied to be a volunteer at the Art Institute. The Art Institute has a wonderful program where they are open late on Thursdays and it's free for Illinois residents, which I think is just wonderful because we get a lot of people you know, who wouldn't have normally come into the Art Institute that come because they're not working and it's free. So I lead tours. I work at the information desk. I answer a lot of questions about where the bathroom is.
1: (laughs) It's a lot of fun.
0: I really, really love it. And you can't beat the setting. Even just being surrounded by the works of art is a joy. So business and art history, do those interests pop up in the books you choose? (laughs) I would say art history definitely pops up. And I think Those books about books probably fall in the same category to me, like Find Those Books by Charlie Lovett are really interesting because they're that intersection of art and literature and history and adventure, really exciting. I don't read a ton of business books. I'm just not one of those people. But yeah, the art history definitely pops up in my reading life for sure.
1: So Anna, you told us on your submission that you had another volunteer job. The title you gave yourself in capital letters <laughs> was Literary Commissioner. <laughs> I would love to hear more about that, please.
0: Yes. Well, I also said in my submission that I hold the principle imitation is a sincerest form of flattery to be very true because for the last couple of years, my family has instituted what we call capital L literary Christmas where you know we're a pretty literary bunch every time we get together it's a lot of ooh you should read this and have you heard about this book so we're always talking books when we're together a couple of years ago my sister and I were talking about holidays coming up and oh what are we gonna get everyone for Christmas presents you know we're all kind of quasi grown-ups at this point so we don't really need anything. But we were both like, well, wait, wait, like books don't fall into that. We can always use more <laughs> books. <laughs> so we came up with this idea of literary Christmas where each family member gives a book to two different people and gets a book from two different people. And because I was a longtime listener of your show, I was thinking, okay, well, how do we help people pick books that other people are actually going to like? And I was like, oh my gosh, we have to use Anne's format. So I am the self-styled literary commissioner, which basically just means I collect from everyone three books they love, one book they don't, and a description of their taste. And then I pass that along to the people who will be giving to them in early October so that by Christmas time, they're able to pick out the perfect book for the person that they have. Oh, so this is well underway right now. Oh, yeah. I sent out the email a couple weeks ago. I want to give everyone plenty of time to hunt. There are always grumblings like, oh, you gave me a really hard person. So I try to give everybody plenty of lead time. Who is really hard to buy for in your family? So we are a pretty wide ranging group. There are 12 of us who do literary Christmas. And we all read really differently from one another. For example, my brother in law loves science fiction and fantasy, any kind of like speculative fiction. And my dad truly might have read every single historical nonfiction <laughs> about American history ever written. It's, he's nearly impossible to buy for. On the other side, my aunt, who I love very much, loves books with, quote unquote, women with hard lives. So we're all over the spectrum. And as literary commissioner, I get a fun bird's eye view into everyone's picks. So it's a lot of
1: fun. T- so you have everyone self-describe their own taste. That's so interesting. So what do you put down for yours? I really like that intersection of a page
0: turner, but also really well written. I think I wrote in my submission that your blog post a couple years ago on Modern Mrs. Darcy about literary novels that will have you compulsively turning the pages. Every single book on that list, I was like, yep, Yep. Yep. Love it. (laughs) So that's what I put as my descriptor for taste. And this year, my three favorites and one not favorite also line up with what I'm going to talk about today. I can't wait. My family's probably going to be like, oh, Anne gave better ones than
1: I did. (laughs) (laughs) No, see, you just said you can always use more books. So hopefully Anne gave different ones than your family members did. And then you have more to choose from. Exactly. Exactly. How long have you all been doing Literary Christmas? So, this is year number two. Tell me a little bit about
0: last year's exchange. So, last year was the first year, as I mentioned. And it was really funny because our family is pretty divided on Cormac McCarthy.
1: We have some people who really love him and some people who <laughs> really don't. I imagine your family is in Microsoft, some of readers everywhere, then. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: So it was really fun. Last year, I had my aunt, who I mentioned loves books about women with hard lives. So I gave her a place for us last year, which she really enjoyed. And she also got a gentleman in Moscow, which she loved and has since made the rounds in our family. So a lot of times, if someone really loves a book that they get it, you know, the recommendation starts to make its way around. But I had my younger brother last year, and he was fun because he's one of those people who really loves like a page-turning novel. He isn't super super worried about literary style or anything like that. So I chose Recursion by Blake Crouch, uh-huh. which I thought would be fun because, you know, there's that time travel element and Blake Crouch's writing always reminds me of like a Harrison Ford, like there's always some danger around the corner but the protagonist is, is going to fix it. <laughs> and then I also received from my uncle, Ohio by Stephen Markley, which is a novel about four friends in this Ohio town over the course of one night and the way that their lives intersect and their high school paths continue to haunt them, which was really good because before I even started Literary Christmas, I had that one on my list. So it's fun to see like when someone's pick for you aligns perfectly with your taste. That's always really fun to see.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you for that peek inside your family Christmas. It sounds like you all are talking about books a lot. Are you in the same community or are you far flung? We are really far flung. So my
0: parents and my grandpa and his wife and my aunt and uncle all live out in the West Coast. They live in Oregon. I'm in Chicago. My sister and brother-in-law are in Atlanta. My older brother is in Ohio, and we often don't always get to see everyone at the same time over Christmas. So it is really fun that this keeps us connected because Christmas Day, we have a a group chat where everyone sends pictures of the book they got, and we got to have a lot of bookish discussion. So it's nice to have that thread, even if we aren't able to see each other every Christmas.
1: Oh, yes. I love that. Do you know what you're giving this year? Ooh, I have some
0: toughies this year, so I I don't think he listens to this. I have my cousin.
1: We <laughs> <laughs> won't spill any secrets, but who are you buying for? What's their taste like? Yeah, so I have
0: my cousin who is a senior in high school and is incredibly well read. So he really enjoys books that have a social justice component. I think mm-hmm. he really liked the hate you give, and I think I'm gonna give him not for literary christmas but my copy of the nickel boys because he expressed an interest in that but he also loves some of the classics that he's read in high school which kind of threw me for a curve because not all high schoolers do so i still have some thinking to do on that one I have my older brother this year who is also a fantasy reader and one of the most prolific rereaders I have ever met. So getting something new in his rotation will be a challenge for sure. Good luck. We wish you well.
1: <laughs> That's really fun. Yeah, it is fun. I love how it sounds like this is something that your family members sit with and contemplate and get to think about their family member in the books for many weeks leading up to the actual exchange. And that's
0: the thing that I think is really fun about Literary Christmas is that hunt aspect. You know, I'll get calls from my parents and they're like, we're at the bookstore. What do you think of this idea for so-and-so? And And we see each other at Thanksgiving. People will be like, okay, I have some ideas. Like, I want to run them by you. So it is really kind of like a literary treasure hunt, which I think is a lot of fun leading up to the holidays.
1: Okay, Anna, well, after that little breadcrumb you dropped us, I can't wait to get into your books. (laughs) Are you ready to do this? Let's do it. Okay. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Anna, how did you choose these? Yeah.
0: So I really tried to think about those books where when I finished them, I just sat back in my chair and said, wow, like... You know those books where you just have to sit a minute? Those are the ones that really stuck in my brain over the last three years and the ones that I can't stop thinking about. So those ones that their impact really had staying power were the ones that I chose today. That sounds like a great way to pick. So we're going to start with your
1: favorites. What did you choose for book one?
0: So my first favorite is Writers and Lovers by Lily King. This is the most recent book by Lily King. She had another one come out a few years ago that I also enjoyed. Writers and Lovers had a protagonist that I can't remember rooting for a protagonist more than I cheered for Casey in this book. She felt really authentic to me. Her experience as a young person and a writer, you know, trying to figure out who you are, what your path in life will be, and then having the courage to follow that path really resonated with me as a young person trying to discern my own path. Lily King is a gorgeous writer, but I also find her to be a really approachable writer. None of her writing is, you know, overly flowery or in your face, but there are times where she just hits you with a sentence and whew, It's so good. So I read this one on ebook format. I borrowed it from my library. And as soon as I finished, I ran to my
1: bookstore and I was like, I have to have a paper copy of this book because I loved it so much. Time is weird in 2020, but that did just come out this March, right? That's a pretty new release. Yeah, I think so. Is that reflective of all of what you tend to pick up? Do they tend to be the newer releases?
0: It's not. I actually love searching for backlist titles. I find that particularly things that I missed when you know I was a young kid not reading adult fiction mm-hmm. that I've had a few years to kind of either sink or swim are really fun to discover because it, it does feel, again, a little bit like a treasure hunt to like find things in the backlist that not everyone is talking about.
1: But this one was so good, I couldn't resist. I'm glad to hear it. An irresistible book always sounds like the kind of thing I'd want to be reading. Anna, tell us about book two. So book
0: two is The Knicks by Nathan Hill. This one came out a few years ago. Got some buzz, but I don't hear people talking about it as much anymore, which is such a shame because I loved this book. It's the story of a young professor whose mother left him when he was a young boy. And one day he sees her on television arrested for throwing a rock at a politician. And so he begins this journey of finding out who his mother really was and confronting all of the ways that her leaving really left a mark on him into adulthood The book jumps back and forth in time um, and narrator. So you hear a little bit from his mother and then also from the protagonist in the modern day. And it also jumps between settings. So you're in Chicago, you're in a small fishing village in Norway. So it's a really expansive novel that covers a lot of stories and topics, but it was so well written and so much happens that I just flew through it.
1: And it was one that definitely stuck with me long after I finished reading it. So of the two books that we've talked about so far, are these the kind of titles you have in mind when you say compulsively readable literary fiction?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. The, they both are ones where I had to tear myself away from my seat. I mean, <laughs> you have to go to work now. You can't keep oh, reading this painful. I know. I know. Anna, tell us about book three. Okay, so book three is one of the books that had the most impact on me. I could so distinctly picture where I was when I was reading it and the feeling that I had when I was reading it, and that is Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. Which is one of the best
1: titles ever, I have to say.
0: Oh, it's so good. Everything about this book is so completely different from anything I had ever read up to that point. So it's the story of a young soldier home from Afghanistan who, along with his squadron, is being honored at a halftime show at a Dallas Cowboys game. So it's a really interesting form. Um, it's told almost stream of consciousness where you like almost lift your head up from the book and you're like, wait, where am I? You're just so enmeshed in Billy's reality that you have a hard time snapping back to your own reality. And there's a lot of words that are spelled phonetically, instances where there are only a few words on the page and they're arranged out of the normal sequence. So it was really different than anything I had ever read before. And I think that's part of the reason it was so impactful. And the game is told or the story is told over the course of the football game. So you get to meet like an almost Odyssey-like cast of characters that Billy encounters throughout the four hours of this game. And this is one that, again, stuck with me for long after and one that I haven't seen on a ton of, you know, lists or anything. So it's one that I've made it to my
1: mission to share with as many people as I can. So it's your mission. It's your personal mission to spread the word. I mean, you're doing it. You're doing it right now, Anna. (laughs) I hope so. If people pick it up (laughs) after listening to this, I would be so pleased. And readers, you know, we put every book in the show notes. You don't actually need to pull over or put down your laundry, or pause your workout, too. You can you can tell what I do when I'm <laughs> listening to podcasts. Now, Anna, I have to tell you, when we saw your hated title on the submission form, I felt seen. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> okay, tell us. Tell us about the book that wasn't for you. <laughs> and I am not afraid to use
0: the H word here. I hated this book, The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. So prior to the time that I read this book, I was like a finisher. I was like, no, you have to finish every book you started. And as soon as I put this book down, I was like, no, we're gonna we're gonna DNF books now. I can't do that anymore.
1: <laughs> you didn't finish this one?
0: I did, but after I was like, we're in a strict oh, okay. do not finish policy anymore. Can't repeat that. Which is interesting because this book should tick a lot of boxes for me. It's a campus novel. One of the main characters is a young woman studying Victorian literature. There's even like a love triangle at the center of the story. And so it's largely built around these three characters, these three college students who circle each other throughout the time of the book and keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I am not a person that needs you know, every character to be likable, but it's really important to me that throughout the novel and when I finish, both me as the reader and the characters are not the same people as when the story started. And when I finished the marriage plot, I was like, well, we are back in the exact same place that we were at the beginning. And so this one just definitely did not work for me.
1: I really wanted to like it. I mean, I can remember clearly hearing about it on NPR and listening to him speak about the demise of the marriage plot trope and how he'd addressed it in his new book. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is for me. But I remember the ending being really... Fitting, like really satisfying. But oh, the book, I think this book might be very much of its time, like it came out in 2011, 2012. And there's a lot about literary deconstruction and what it means to be a scholarly reader. And I think that was being discussed as he was writing hmm. But even by the time the book came out, I don't think that was being discussed as much like in the culture in in, in the university setting. And I just oh, it just it just made me tired.
0: And definitely don't want to write off Jeffrey Eugenides. I know he's a very talented writer. I think this one we just were like ships passing in the night. This one missed <laughs> me
1: for sure. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think there was also the hopefulness going into it and the expectations that it's so hard as a reader not to have going in. And so Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was a part of my disappointing reading experience. And maybe you find that relatable.
0: Yeah. And I think every reader's experience with that marriage plot trope is going to be different. I'm sure your readers have probably read a lot of Jane Austen. So coming from that tradition and really loving those books but also growing up in, you know, modern times, I was excited for that intersection. I don't think it felt very true to expectations. Those books are really foundational for a lot of people and then to have it miss just feels like an even bigger miss when you have really high expectations.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Anna, what have you been reading lately?
0: I just finished uh The Parade by Dave Eggers, which was it's a short book, but it's a really impactful book. And then I am also listening to Transcendent Kingdom by Ya Jesse on audiobook and loving it.
1: Oh good.
0: I'm so glad to hear it's good in that format. I loved it in print. Oh, it's gorgeous. And Yad Jessie is just a genius. So
1: I'm loving the ride on that one. Anna, as we think about what you may enjoy reading next, is there anything that you're looking for in your reading life right now? Anything you want to be different?
0: Yeah. So I think, as I mentioned, I'm looking for more of those books that just leave you kind of stunned by how beautiful they are. And I think for me, that happens quite a bit with books that I'll call like an interesting structure. A couple of others that kind of fit that bill were like Daisy Jones and the Six had that really interesting structure. I read Night Theater by Vikram Peralkar this year that had a similar interesting structure that I had never seen done before, which I think just makes for such an exciting reading experience. And I've had a lot of success with those books that have something slightly different about
1: them just a little twist so I would love to have more of those in my reading life okay page turners that are also well written and I imagine you meaning like the prose is really lovely not just that the prose is in service of the story and does an excellent job but that it's really I don't know beautiful writing is that taking it too far I don't think that's taking it too far and yeah for sure Basically, I was trying to avoid saying compulsively readable literary fiction, but, <laughs> but that would not be amiss. <laughs> and an interesting structure. Okay, I think we can do this. Okay. So the books you loved were Writers and Lovers by Lily King, The Knicks by Nathan Hale, and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain not for you, or okay, you said you hated The Marriage Plot by <laughs> Jeffrey Eugenides. And lately, you've been reading The Parade by Dave Eggers, which is unread on, right on my shelf. I can see it from where I am. So, Ooh. you know, sometimes we just need to be reminded a book exists. And also Transcendent Kingdom, the new novel from Ya Jesse. Okay, so there are lots of different places we could go here. When you said that you really like the combination of art history, literature, and how connections can be made in the text and through the text, a book that immediately sprung to mind was a 2017 release from Christina Baker Klein, the historical fiction writer, called A Piece of the World. Is this one you're familiar with? Not at all. Okay. Well, good. I'm happy to hear it. She's probably (laughs) best known for her big New York Times bestseller, It Made the Rounds of a Million Book Clubs, Orphan Train a piece of the world may be up your alley, because here's a big hint. The title that Christina Baker Klein wanted for this book was Christina's World. And if you look at the cover, you see a really moody landscape, a hilly field. You see a house that might be a little bit decrepit an interesting lighting and a big, big sky. There's no woman in the illustration, but is this sounding familiar at all? Yeah, I think I could. I might have seen it on a on a bookstore shelf. Christina's World is this famous painting by Andrew Wyeth, and my first thought was, oh, "Is it at the art?" It's not. Oh. It's at MoMA. I saw it at MoMA, not <laughs> Chicago. But golly, that would have been so so perfect. You could go swing oh, by man. and take a look at it and read your book, but. This is a story that's not exactly about the painting itself, although the painting is woven through the book, but it's about the subject of the painting. And that is a young woman named Christina Olsen. And the whole story takes place in Maine in the first half of the 20th century. Andrew Wyeth came into Christina Olsen's life because he was, I want to say dating, but I don't know that that's how they said it in 1930, um, (laughs) when he was what do we say, C- courting, wooing? How about he came to marry a local girl who was friends with Christina and that's how, uh- the two came together. But this is a fictionalized account of her life, and it was her who posed for Andrew Wyeth's famous painting. If you read the tag at MoMA, or if you do a little googling, you'll see that the woman who's the subject of this iconic painting had a hard life. Her father emigrated from Sweden in the late 19th century due to there just being no opportunity there. And Christina had problems with her legs. And I'm sure that Christina Baker Klein goes into detail in this book. And I don't remember at a distance of three and a half years, but she's constantly talking about her mutinous body and how it won't do what she wants it to do. And she has these very real physical limitations that are challenging to her, both internally and externally. This is her story from her perspective. And you see how art changes her. And she says something really interesting in the story. She says something like, I read that the act of observing something changes the nature of what is observed, which is a really interesting commentary on the painting and the story itself. I think this could be really interesting for you. That sounds really interesting. And what you were
0: saying about the object being observed, changing the object sounds straight out of
1: one of my art history classes. So I am here for that. I have to say this could totally qualify as a novel about women with hard lives, although that is what your aunt's taste, not your own. Ooh. but Maybe I'll save that 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 one. Yeah. If I have her one year for literary Christmas, I'll keep that in the back of my mind. Now, you say that often you read a book and you finish it, and then you want to look for something that's a completely different genre. So that's what we're going to do right now. You said you like books with interesting structures. This might be a little too out there, but I'm wondering, just for a reading experience that I imagine is unlike most reading experiences, Anyone has at any time? Have you ever read Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night, a Traveler?
0: I have not. I have read
1: Calvino's Invisible Cities, but that is it. That is the one I've been meaning to read ever since I talked to Jim Mustick on the, the podcast. What did you think of Invisible Cities?
0: Oh, I loved it. And knowing what I know about your interest in urban planning,
1: I think you'd love it too. Uh, That is why it came up in our conversation. (laughs) This is a weird book. It was first published in 1979. Even then it was highly experimental. It's still a real brain bender for a lot of readers. And the structure has been described as impossible, as outlandish, as nonsensical, as delightful, as zany. But it is a book that's about the enjoyment of the reading life. And I don't know... I don't know how to describe it to you (laughs) except to read to you a little bit from it. So I'm going to fire up the beginning. This book is told in the second person, and it's describing to you your experience of reading the book, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. You get to be the protagonist in this novel. And here's how it goes. I honestly, I am reading right now. You are about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Relax, concentrate, dispel every other thought let the world around you fade. Best to close the door. The TV is always on in the next room. Tell your family, I'm beginning to read Italo Covino's new novel. Or if you prefer, don't say anything. Just hope they'll leave you alone. He goes on to describe the experience of you getting comfortable in your chair, adjusting the light, your expectations of a book, um, the kind of book lists you've been making. For the kinds of books you want to read. Now, Anna, he may have you wrong because you're not making book lists. He's suggesting that you probably have these lists, if only in your head perhaps, of the books you've been planning to read for ages, the books you've been hunting for years without success, the books you want to own so they'll be handy just in case. Maybe you'll actually relate to that. So that's how the novel starts. But then it gets weirder as you're reading the book, you keep getting interrupted. The chapters alternate. There's the experience of you reading the book, but then you start reading a short story and it's the beginning of a book and you start reading it and the story gets really interesting. But then the story stops and you discover that, oh no, you have to go to the bookstore actually and find the rest of the books. You continue reading it because you really liked it, but then you turn the page in the book and you're reading another story. And it does this something like 12 times. And it's weird. And you said that you like books that do like some one interesting thing with the structure. And this does a lot more than one interesting thing with the structure. (laughs) But if you really wanted to go all in on that, what is something different that a novelist could do with a novel? I think if nothing else, this could be a memorable reading experience. How does that sound?
0: Oh, that sounds so good. That Mix of books about books and also structure with the twist.
1: It sounds amazing. Okay, let's come back to a little more grounded. Uh, I really am tempted to like rattle off a bunch of interesting books that have strange structures. Oh, I'm not going to stop (laughs) you. (laughs) <laughs> There's so many interesting directions we can go with this. And also I've noticed in books I'm reading now that are coming out um, in 2021, that an increasing trend seems to be I'm reading lots of books that have transcripts in them, that have um, scenes from films that have like the script written into the text. I just finished mm. a novel that had a podcast transcript written into the text. That's something that we're seeing a lot these days. And then when we think about books with interesting structures that really were groundbreaking in a lot of ways, I'm thinking of like A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan, which isn't quite a novel in short stories, but it's not a straightforward novel either. But it's like these interconnected vignettes that are united by the characters and the theme she's exploring. But for another novel that's written very similarly, but has totally different theme and style, there's Before We Visit the Goddess by Titra Banerjee Devakaruni. I know that I have talked a ton about This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell, because I personally love it. (laughs) But even nonfiction can do something like this. Like I'm thinking of The Yellow House by Sarah Broom, which is a memoir, but it's a memoir with a very deliberate, conscious structure. Actually, that may be an interesting place to camp out. I do you like the sound of perhaps doing a memoir, or would you rather stick to novels? Oh, no. I'm happy to do memoir. Okay. So this is The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. I think it just came out in 2019. I remember buying it at the bookstore, High Main Street Books in Davidson, North Carolina, <laughs> but I can't quite remember what year that was when it was new. But this is a story about the house she grew up in, in New Orleans, but It's not just about the house she grew up in. And she said that when she started writing this book, she thought about the book itself like it was a house because she said, okay... I had to get the walls in place so the whole thing would hold. And I knew I wanted to cram a lot of stuff in there and it had to fit. Like, and that's how you would think about moving into a house. But she was building the house she was moving into. But she said that structurally, the way she put this book together was she started with a family timeline because, in many ways, it's the story of her family. Like, um, in 1914, this is what happened for my family. And she built that timeline. And then on top of it, she layered the city timeline, what was happening in the city of New Orleans. And then on top of that, this isn't just a story about a family or about a city. It's a story about America. And so she had the timeline for American history to see how all that fit together. And then she had to layer on top of that, New Orleans East, which she says is something like six miles from the French Quarter. But nobody knows anything about New Orleans East. And people know all kinds of things about the French Quarter, but that definitely doesn't represent her family history, probably doesn't accurately represent her city history, and definitely doesn't capture the things she's trying to say in this story. So that's the architecture of the book. But when you're reading the book, it's here, I actually have it on my shelf. Let me grab it. The book's divided into sections, but she doesn't call them sections. She calls them movements, which I think is really interesting. She's trying to say something different. Within each segment of the movement. She consciously wants there to be differences in rhythm and pace and tone and feeling. She wanted the book itself to have this sense of displacement and scattering because that's the story she's telling about gentrification and people getting kicked out of neighborhoods and them having to move because the rent is too high. So the medium is a huge part of her message here to borrow from the Canadian philosopher. I think it could be really interesting for you. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds
0: so good. I love that interplay of the structure of the novel furthering the actual story that she's telling. That would be so fun to watch. Yeah, that sounds really good. I have never been to New Orleans, but I would love to explore a new place through that book. Well, that would be a great way to
1: explore, especially right now. I have to tell you, (laughs) there is one little exchange in the book where one character I mean, I'm going to call them a character, even though they're real people, says to another, like, hold on, you just got to be patient. And I feel like that's the encouragement that I needed at the beginning of The Yellow House because she's unspooling quite a story and a sprawling one. And it does take some time to get the lay of the land and get going. But I hope your patience will be rewarded. And I hope you enjoy it. Oh, it sounds so good. Okay, Anna, the books we talked about today were A Piece of the World by Christina Baker Klein, If on a Winter's Night, a Traveler by Italo Calvino, and The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. Of those titles, what do you think you'll read next?
0: I think I'm ready for a little bit of weird. So (laughs) I think I'm going to go with If on a Winter's Night, a Traveler by Italo Calvino. I hope it's a um, (laughs) thought-provoking
1: and memorable reading experience. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Anna, this was fun. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Oh, thank you, Anne. This has been so much fun. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Anna, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 264, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Vogel and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can fix that now. Visit whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help us find new readers to listen to our show. To support the show in a tangible way, join our Patreon community. That's at Patreon.com/slash What Should I Read Next, or buy a copy of my book I'd Rather Be Reading for yourself or a book-loving friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Peggacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.